When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll Maxi series discussing Michelangelo Mato's book, The Underground is Massive How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Let It Roll is the insanely ambitious musical history podcast. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, Nate and Ryan kick off the third series of Techno Roll with a discussion of Matos' first chapter, which focuses on the emergence of house music in Chicago in the 1980s. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. Or should I say techno roll? And that hackney joke clues you in that we're starting our third series of techno roll. We is me, Nate Wilcox, and Ryan Harkness. Ryan, welcome back. Hello again. And we're going to be discussing a new book this time, yet another tome The Underground is Massive How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America by Michelangelo Mato. So, whole new book, whole new author. What's his general conceit? What's the book covering? Why is it different than uh, how DJ Saved My Life and Energy Flash? Well, the key thing is Underground is Massive was published in 2015, which makes it 15 years uh, advanced from the last two books, which were Energy Flash was 98 and Last Night a DJ Saved My Life was 1999. And both of them have some, you know, uh, so, some re-releases with some extra chapters and stuff, but it's a real cram session. So... Underground is Massive uh, basically pays attention specifically to the North American rave scene, and it captures everything that kind of happened, you know, all the way back from the 80s, but it actually gets us into the new millennia and into that 2000 to 2015, which I think most of our listeners, these are the years that they were actually participating in things. So I think there's going to be some some more stuff that kind of resonates with them as opposed to just straight history. Excellent. And and his conceit is that he's covering 18 parties and or club dates. Some of these are specific, you know, on this date, this show, these people. Some of these are broader things like this first chapter that we're going to talk about where he, he picks the power plant early 1983. He doesn't have like a date like June 6, 1983. It's just early 1983. And all of these chapters actually cover much broader swaths of history than just the particular party. It's just kind of a conceit that he's focusing on this one key event. And I think the thing to point out with Matos is that, and I don't mean this to disparage the other writers that we've done, but he's a much better writer than the other guys, like in terms of creating a narrative and and then in terms of storytelling. I think Reynolds is probably the better music critic. And I think Brewster and Broughton really exploded the paradigm of music history by focusing on the DJ as, as an, as a creative entity in its own right. But Matos is more like, you know, your classic sort of Ed Ward music historian who can, and, and I think maybe even better than some of Ed's later work where, where he really weaves a story together and gives you the feeling that you're inside these people's heads, et cetera, which means I got to warn you, He's also created a narrative, and anytime somebody's that good a writer, always be cognizant you're kind of in storyland. And this is his telling of this history, and 
while he's, I'm sure, striven to be scrupulously accurate, he still created a narrative. And as he says in his intro, he cut out lots of stuff. So you, you kind of glided over that that covers everything. I think it does cover the big events and explains why did it take so long for electronic dance music to become a dominant pop form in America. But like Mato says, he left out a ton of stuff that he thought was important, that some of his favorite stuff. So this is a huge, huge story, and he's boiled it down into several hundred pages here. Uh, I guess it's only 270, 80-something pages. No, no, 360. Yeah, 364. 350 or something like that. Yeah, the intro is a bit of a mea culpa apologizing for skipping so much. And even just kind of admitting that there are DJs that that he loved and that he cared about back in the 2000s that now that he's writing this book, he had to ruthlessly cut them out. And I, I can kind of appreciate that. I, I think there there was a a certain stress that he had that he was leaving so many things out. But I think it all all works. Like like you were saying, it's built around. The conceit is that it's built around specific clubs or events, but it's more of a snapshot in time. And then the border gets filled out past the border uh, by the by the author. Like uh, last night, a DJ saved my life is so linear. Uh, They're clearly telling a history and moving through that history very deliberately. While underground is massive, will sacrifice like linear clarity for a narrative punch. So like this book kicks off with the Belleville three in Detroit and then uses their story to kind of touch back to Chicago house and New York garage. And I feel like that might be a bit confusing for people who, who aren't familiar with all the key names, but it really shows how everything was so interconnected. I feel like other books separate Chicago and Detroit history into their own things, but underground is massive shows how much Derek may was in Chicago running back and forth and how one Atkins was getting support uh, from that scene. And then at the end, there's this really interesting uh, anecdote about how Marshall Jefferson is in Chicago talking to a record store DJ in the UK who had gotten a copy of his record from DJ Alfredo in, a, in Ibiza, who had got it from Larry Levin in New York. So this is this is a proper feel for how interconnected all these scenes were before, where all the other books that we've read, I feel just kind of like stick them in in their corners for for historical clarity but you lose uh some of some of what really made the whole engine turn which was the fact that it's all interconnected yeah absolutely and and an excellent segue into our first chapter which is as i mentioned the power plant chicago illinois early 1983 and like you said um the first time i read this in 2015 i think it'd been 15 years since i'd read Brewster Broughton or Reynolds. And I remember being really baffled why we were starting in Detroit on the chapter on Chicago. <laughs> like that was um and going back and reading it again, especially after doing the Brewster Broughton and the Reynolds thing much fresher, it's a lot easier to sort through this. When I was reading it in 2015, I had forgotten who was Kevin Saunderson and who's Jesse Saunders and uh, you know, and then getting all the um uh, the the Silk Hurleys and the Farley Jackmaster Funks confused and and stuff like that. It was it was a lot easier to keep things tr- straight for me this time, and I think it it makes sense. I think because Frankie Knuckles, I don't know, it didn't seem like he had access to Frankie Knuckles in this, and Ron Hardy obviously had passed away a long time ago, and it doesn't seem like he talked to any of the Hot Mix 5 guys either, so Farley, Keith, and others. So my guess as to why he emphasizes the Detroit, the Belleville 3 so much in this Chicago chapter is they were his sources. He talked to him a lot more. And so he kind of got their perspective on the Chicago scene. And it's also just a good narrative device. It introduces um, Chicago from an outsider's, the Chicago house scene from an outsider's perspective. And also makes the point that these two scenes were deeply interconnected. As we discussed before, the original compilation album in England that introduced Detroit techno to the Brits was originally going to be called the house sound of Detroit. So up until the release of the album, calling it the techno sound of Detroit, it was really seen as house music. It wasn't seen techno wasn't seen as a separate genre or subgenre. So I don't know. I think it works for me. It, it, 
I was a little, I balked against it a little bit when I started rereading, but, but it made perfect sense. Yeah. Well, just Um, trying to, to set up this chapter where we're going to be discussing everything and trying to figure out where to draw the line, because this is a Chicago chapter, but it, it it really kind of delves into Detroit uh, quite a bit. So it's a bit confusing like that, but I feel like maybe this was all like a device to uh, avoid having to get into disco and, and driving back into disco. Because if you start with techno and then touch on house, you don't have to go from house and pull back into disco. You can just kind of say, you know, Frankie Knuckles uh, played disco in New York. And now let's just not speak of that anymore. They were already two steps removed from our initial discussion of techno. Let's not go any further. Yeah, although it is interesting that Larry LeVan and the Paradise Garage in New York, um, there's no chapter on that. And and LeVan it's been is, done. It's been done. It's been done. It's been done. Like this is this is like even these two chapters here. I feel like you know on our third season of the show, this is our third kind of kick it at at the at the Detroit and Chicago can. Um, you need it because it's the foundation for everything that happens in America. But chapter three is really where we start getting into unknown territory. And that's really exciting. But, yes. uh, you know, how many books have there been on, on New York disco? Yes, yes, yes. Fair, fair enough. Fair enough. And, and the, despite the fact that garage, as we've been reminded to pronounce it, uh, has been, has been retroactively marked as a, as a subgenre of dance music, a la house or techno at the time i don't think that was the the perception i don't think people who were just following larry levan and, and the paradise garage scene were thinking wow this is a whole new style it was it was right in the thick of of the sort of 80s disco hangover it, it didn't jump out from metallo synth music or or high energy uh that was coming out of uk and, and also gay clubs in new york and san francisco it didn't seem like a distinct style at the time. It was only when other DJs fetishized the 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 Paradise Garage, I think, that it became seen as a genre distinct from house music. Um, and yeah, and it, it is kind of a struggle to come up with what what have we not said in our previous multiple episodes on house and and techno. And I think we should just treat it as a review. What do you think of that? Yeah, no, I'm perfectly happy to do that. And uh, as I said, like this, this book adds a bunch of new anecdotes in there. Uh, he's speaking to a lot of these people 15 years later, and he's getting a lot of clarification from little, little bits and pieces from past books that I feel like he. It's almost like he read those and he had questions and he got them answered and he made sure they ended up in the book. So, yeah, yeah, works out. And and he starts out with Juan Atkins being mad at Derek May for trying to sell or selling Frankie Knuckles a 909, a Roland 909 drum machine, which which they had been using on their early Cybertron records, and they're going to use on, um, you know, the whole wave of, of Belleville 3 records. And, De- you know, they were hard to get a hold of at the time, and Frankie Knuckles knew what it was immediately and definitely bought it uh, at the first opportunity. And that also created a relationship between Derek May and Frankie Knuckles that... Um, it's easy to see, like, I think that one Atkins being mad at him about giving away the sound or giving the 909 to Frankie Knuckles. He might also have been a little bit jealous that, hey, my protege is now talking to somebody who's a much more established DJ, although not a recording artist like Juan Atkins was. So I think there might have been some personal jealousy there as well. And it's also really fascinating to me how Kevin Saunderson's take on this whole thing was ah chicago ain't nothing i've been to new york and and been to the garage (laughs) you know like yeah both kind of like different different parts of the groups having partied in different cities and thinking their what they were experiencing was was the real top but i think there was uh you know just just that hierarchy of the idea of what was going on in new york was tops with the garage the paradise garage and then these guys in detroit having to go to chicago to experience that and and while there was interesting things musically going on in, in Detroit because of guys like the electrifying mojo, uh, really opening the city to new music styles, Chicago was the place to be with Frankie Knuckles and Ron Hardy. And they had, you know, the hot mix five were their electrifying mojo. So they had like proper radio support and they had the clubs. So Detroit seemed like it was more of a youth, uh, youth party scene. 
And uh, but but Chicago definitely had uh, like some some real meccas to go to if you were interested in this new house sound. Yeah. And the and the Hot Mix 5, they were on WBMX FM and the importance of them, I don't think can be overstated because they had a massive audience, like as many as a million people a week in the Chicagoland area tuning in. They were doing live mixes on the air so people could hear really an excellent simulation of what was being played in the clubs, if not even more state-of-the-art than what was being played in the clubs, because they were bringing tapes in, they were mixing on turntables. If you uh, highly recommend getting on SoundCloud or MixCloud and listening to Hot Mix 5 shows, because it really gives you a feel for what the people of Chicago were hearing and why House became this dominant regional style that actually fought off hip-hop for like 10 or 15 years. I mean, there's if you're ever wondering why are there so few old school Chicago hip hop artists. It's because they were all making house records instead of doing hip hop. And he also talks about the way um, Derek May discovered house music, which was going to a record store called Imports, et cetera, in Chicago and seeing this section called house music. And he was like, house music, what is this? And you know, he finds these bins that have plenty of disco stuff from Philly International or Soul Soul Records, you know, classic 70s disco, lots of the Italo disco from the late 70s and early 80s that really filled in the vacuum after the backlash and the infamous disco sucks party, which we've covered multiple times on the show, there was a real paucity of American disco records for a while. And so there was a lot from Italy and Germany coming in. And also you had uh, records from the UK, um, like Money, No Love, uh, backed with Love Money, a classic B-side. You had Bo Cool's Money, No Love on one side and TW Funkmasters, Love Money on the other side. Um, but that clued Derek May in that something was going on. And let's play our first tune which uh, this is a number of names, Sharivari. Why'd you pick this one? Uh, you know, Sharivari was mentioned in uh, last night at DJ Save My Life as like one of those tracks that Juan uh, Atkins and Juan Atkins and all them used to hear at these youth parties that that really inspired their sound. And you can hear the electro influence, uh, the Italo influence, and it kind of shows you maybe why Detroit ended up going more, more, you know, how it went into a more electro techno sound while Chicago was really kind of funky and smoother house. All right. And let's hear it. A number of names by Sharivari. Or is that vice versa? Sharivari by a number of names. There you Stuff's go. It's confusing. It's a madhouse. Sharivari. Smoking on his cigarette, listening to his carcassette, cruising with his hot playmate in his portion 928, heading for the highest heights, for the climax of the night. The people there, they just won't quit. Well, that was Shari Vari from 1981 by a number of names. Proto Chicago House, I guess, is a way is a way to describe it. When we talk about Frankie Knuckles. We should mention again, he was a New York DJ. Came up with Larry Levan. Um, they worked together. Uh, he's from the South Bronx. Grew up together. Started out um, basically as flunkies for DJ Nicky Ciano in the gallery. You know, putting acid in the punch bowl, stuff like that, doing the lights. Then they moved up to the Continental Baths, which was this legendary bathhouse slash sex club where um aimed at uh, aimed at gay men this is where barry manlow and bet midler were discovered he was the piano player and bet midler was the singer it's, it's hard to picture this uh you know in a sex club with sex on the premises but apparently in other rooms but larry was a dj there and frankie knuckles uh, did the lights and then both of them moved on larry to the paradise garage and then frankie was lured to chicago by this guy robert williams and this was a nugget that was new to me from the Matos book was that Robert Williams, who is the owner of first the warehouse and then, um, uh, did he, yeah, the music box later on. Um, he was there 
juvenile officer when Frankie and Larry were in trouble as kids. And I, I thought that was just classic. What a way to meet um, future DJs for your future discos. Yeah, what a what a weird roundabout way to to end up getting your DJ gig is that your your juvie officer ends up hiring you. <laughs> yeah. And so and and both Paradise Garage and the warehouse in Chicago had sound systems designed by Richard Long. So they had state of the art uh, sound systems. And then uh, Frankie goes to Chicago in 77, initially for a short visit, stays a few weeks, goes back to New York and then decides, yeah, I'm going to commit and 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 is actually living in the club building for a while in Chicago. And by 1979, he's making his own reel-to-reel edits. So he's doing remixes, but on tape and, and in advance. And part of that is because, like I mentioned, the shortage of new disco records in the States because of the Disco Sucks backlash, which absolutely was racist and homophobic. But as we've emphasized before, there was also a flood of incredibly bad disco records. I mean, everybody from Ethel Merman to Kiss was making disco records in the late 70s, and it was a bit much. So the backlash, there were multiple reasons behind the backlash, aside from the obvious racism and homophobia of it, just flooding the market with bad records. And also the radio formatting at the time was very tight. And so you would end up with radio stations that would go from rock to disco, and you might end up with, say, seven out of your top 10 songs having either being BJ's rec- BG's records or produced and written by Andy Gibb, not Andy Gibb, Barry Gibb of the BGs. So a lot of the same old, same old was on everybody's radio and, and definitely at the clubs triggering this backlash. But enough for that caveat. Um, by the early 80s, the Frankie Knuckles sets are traveling around the city on cassette. And um, in late 1981, the warehouse is no longer a members-only club, widens out to a much broader audience. It and starts getting dangerous. It starts getting dangerous. Indeed, indeed. And it was interesting, you know, and, and sad to read that, like, um, there were there was only one gay disco aimed at a white clientele that allowed black men to come into the club in the 70s. I mean, this is the level of day-to-day racism you're talking about. And also Chicago, um, not that I can throw any stones from Texas, but Chicago, definitely one of the most racist cities in the U.S. Like, this is a town where Martin Luther King got his ass kicked in the 60s for trying to march uh, for integrated housing in the suburbs and and totally gave up on the effort because of the, the just vicious racism coming out of the Chicago suburbs. So, you know, definitely a lot of complicated sociology going on there. And then, you know, as gay clubs and the warehouse was primarily a black gay audience, but when it stopped being members only more straight people and more white people started coming in and that's around the time then frankie knuckles leaves the warehouse in november of 82 first for the riverside club and then the power plant and the power plant is the the club that matos picked to be um the scene of this chapter so i i guess he's saying in a way that the power you know the frankie knuckles years of the power plant are the pinnacle of chicago house is that a fair uh, yeah, I mean, I guess that's uh, or just how we kind of, uh, you know, carve the the chapters. I mean, w- the warehouse obviously has its place because house music got its name from the warehouse. So that that's probably usually the more typical pick that people have. But the power plant kind of went on a bit longer than the than the warehouse did. And I guess it was kind of more at, at a musical peak when uh, everybody everybody from from his narrative all the detroit guys were coming down to chicago and hanging out with uh, frankie knuckles so i could see it being more of a, a narrative a narrative spot for everything to happen yeah and i also think the scene got bigger and bigger throughout the 80s so um and 83 is kind of interesting choice but i think what he's done because the next chapter is going to be in Detroit, but not until 1989. So he's kind of cleverly using this chapter as a way to tell the story of the early days of, of electronic dance music in Detroit as at the same time as he's telling in Chicago. And I think that's important because the two cities really did have a symbiotic relationship where, yes, there were original records being made in Chicago, but the early house records were 
different from the early techno records, mainly in how slapped together they were, how low the production qualities were. And there's a lot of energy, and I love that stuff. But the early techno records, the early cyclotron records, um, are clearly a unique vision that's being very carefully crafted. And so um, I think... and it, and it was and those records were being played in the Chicago clubs at the time. So I think it's kind of artificial to try to parse the Detroit scene. It was parsed it afterwards. It was parsed afterwards. Like and that's usually how it how it works is no one really knows. No one's really putting names on it in the moment. And it's usually a couple of years after that that that. Uh, the codification of the genres happen. And then, you know, even further after that, where they really stratify everything and push everything in, and it's got to go in this label or that label. And if you, if you mislabel this song, you're an idiot calling this house. Yep. And it's, it's uh, something you see all the time. And it's always funny to me because it's always younger people who've been given the labels as received wisdoms who get fusty at older people who maybe blend the labels because they were there at the time and saw how the things uh, were more mixed up and less less obvious. But let's hear our next song. And Steph's reminded me I'm not supposed to ask you about this until after I play the song. So let's hear it first, and then I'll ask you about it. And this is Mox, M-A-C-H, version of On and On from 1980. And that was On and On by Mock from 1980. So tell us the story of this whole record and the record that it spawned. And why did you pick it? Uh, I, I picked it because it's a really good representation of just how everything was a remix. Everything was being picked up. Like uh, this track uh, was Jesse Saunders' secret record, his secret weapon record that he'd pull out and play all the time. And it's 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 kind of a rare remix track that lifted a bunch of stuff before sampling was was super common. And it has the bass from Playback Space Invaders, vocals from Donna Summer's Bad Girls, and then it's got uh, Lips Inks Funky Town like all over it. So the funny thing that I always love about this is that Jesse Saunders, you know, wasn't just satisfied having this this white label that he played everywhere that got everybody to get down. They ended up taking it and repurposing it for uh, a track that Jesse Saunders did with Z Factor called Fantasy. And then he went on again after losing the record, the on and on record. He basically rewrote the track again, called it Jesse Saunders on and on. And it was his massive hit. So it's just funny how things get stolen on like several different levels. This was three generations of stealing this track and it all goes back to funky town. And yet Jesse Saunders on and on is considered one of those uh, proto house legendary tracks. And it comes from such a a shifty uh, lifted uh, Frankenstein past that I just love it. Yeah. And it's also, it's a step down from the mock version. I mean, it's like him doing it by memory under much cheaper circumstances with worse equipment. So it's a much jankier sounding record, but it's just classic that it's become like, I mean, it's up there with like rocket 88 or, you know, the first Elvis Presley record where this is a landmark in American musical history. And it's just, I love that the, the, the history of it is so, is so um, shady. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, like you said, it's theft upon theft, and it's it's what it's all about. It's taking music that you hear and making new music out of it. And I don't think anybody who hears those records is going, why why would you listen to this when you could just listen to Funky Town or, or you know or Donna Summer? No, they made something new out of this with these components, and it's its own record and its own thing. But let's turn back to the Belleville Three because he spends quite a bit of time on that, and so. Uh, legendary people we've talked about these guys before you've got Juan atkins is kind of the patriarch of it born 1962 in detroit initially he was a keyboard player uh then he played guitar and drums in funk bands but by the early 80s he had become completely converted 
mainly by craft work, but also uh, Funkadelic's track uh, Fleshlight, the Bernie Worrell electric, uh, electronic bass um, in that song. He had just become totally obsessed with, with futurism and also the book The Third Wave by futurist Alvin Toffler. So he had this whole ideology. He'd gotten his hands on a Korg MS-10 analog synthesizer, and then he partnered up with this uh, Vietnam vet, Rick Davis, who was a little bit older than him, that he had met at community college, and they formed this group, Cyclotron. Um, and, well, before we get that, though, you mentioned um, the Midnight Funk Association and the DJ Electrify Mojo, whose real name was Charles Johnson, a guy from Arkansas who moved up to Detroit and had this uh, show late nights on Sundays, I want to say, on WGPR 107.5 FM in Detroit. Uh, that was the first black music uh, album-oriented rock station where they, they're taking the format that had been pioneered um, in the early 70s and I, I, you know, it's when you say the first black AOR station, it's, it's the short way to say it would be, oh, they stole a format from the white stations. But what the white stations had done was taken a format, Freeform FM Radio, that played a ton of black artists. Freeform FM Radio was built on Sly Stone and Jimi Hendrix and Miles Davis. And at some point, people like Lee Abrams came along and formalized this and it went from DJs playing whatever they thought was cool to you're going to play these songs in this order at these times. And at some point in the process, black artists got exiled from white, from rock radio, which had not been a factor throughout the 60s, 50s and 60s. The music was very integrated. And suddenly in the 70s, it becomes segregated. So you've got phenomenons like the Black Album Oriented Rock Station in Detroit rising up as a response to that. But this guy, Electrify Mojo, not only was he playing plenty of James Brown, plenty of Parliament Funkadelic, plenty of Prince, he was also mixing in Kraftwerk, the B 52s, even Peter Frampton, um, the residents of all people. Uh, extremely obscure group that you could only get by mail order at the time. He was playing that stuff too. And as Derek May said, he made it okay for young black people to listen to quote white music. So I think that was very important influence on uh, the Detroit scene. And, and actually Derek May and Juan Atkins started creating mixes, remixes of songs for Mojo. They were mad they didn't get much credit, but they kept doing it because they loved hearing their stuff on the radio. And that leads into Cyclotron. Anything you want to add about um, Electrify Mojo? Uh, just that, uh, you know, just a reminder, Google him, uh, YouTube him, check Mixcloud. There's lots of Electrifying Mojo sets. And you got to imagine what it was like in the in the late 70s, early 80s, hearing him do his thing. It's uh, He's definitely a personality. And, and then the music is great. And it must have been just being out there hearing some of these original tracks that you're used to and then hearing his weird 10-minute edits of them, people just must have not known what, what the hell was going on. So I encourage everybody to always check out Electrifying Mojo, one of the most interesting uh, kind of things to go back and, and check out. Absolutely. And let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. When we come back, we'll talk about Cyclotron and the first techno records to come out of Detroit. And we're back and... Ryan has pointed out, I've been saying Cyclotron, it's Cybotron. And again, my fucking text editor uh, uh, does this stuff, and my memory has long ago been smoked. So apologies there. And yeah, Cybotron, and that's an embarrassing one because I should know better than that. This is an absolutely pivotal American group. It's Juan Atkins and Rick Davis. And it's not quite Detroit techno, but it's proto-Detroit techno. Started out with a single, Alleys of Your Mind, uh, released independently after they played it for Electrify Mojo, and he told them to release it as a single. So they formed Deep Space Records and put it out. Is that right? Or I've, I've noticed that it was May's label. I think it was Atkins', Atkins own label, Deep Space Records. And they made a big enough splash um, selling that record around the Detroit and Chicago areas that Fantasy Records... Uh, a California label, mainly a jazz label. Most famous is the label that put out Creedence Clearwater Revival and also was involved in decades of litigation with uh, John Fogarty over those records. But they came in, put out the Cybertron um, single, and then the album, the Interda Inter LP, was their debut LP, 
It sold modestly, wasn't a massive hit. Um, they were able to get airplay in Detroit and Chicago, but they couldn't break through New York DJs or other areas. And then the group kind of fell apart because Davis was getting more and more into rock and uh, Juan Atkins was seeing the, te- the vision of Detroit techno and wanted to go in that direction. Atkins wanted to put out Night Drive as their last single. Davis overruled him and they put out Techno City as their last single. Night Drive gets held back uh, for, for Atkins' next project. Um, and then our story comes to Derek May. And what is the the names? The Belleville Three have names for themselves. There's Atkins is the innovator, May, and then Saunderson is the escalator because he made it popular. What is it they call May? I can't remember. Uh I know Atkins was Atkins was the originator. Derek May was the uh, the innovator, okay, and Saunderson was the elevator. All right, perfect, perfect. So that's that's kind of how how they see it is. Is Atkins lays down the blueprint, May perfects it, and Saunderson takes it to the masses because he had multiple um, uh, top ten chart hits in England with his stuff in the late '80s. And when you talked about on and on being a big hit single. I want to clarify, it was a big hit single in the Chicagoland area for an independent record, but it sold like 10 or 20,000 copies, which is massive. Um, and if you compare it to like what was going on with hardcore punk at the same time, I mean, if SST records, when SST records claimed that they had sold 20,000 copies of Husker Du's Zen Arcade, that got Zen Arcade covered in Rolling Stone. So 20,000 copies of an independent record, especially a single, in the 80s in America is a really big deal. That is massive units and tells you how big and popular the house scene was in Chicago. It's kind of one of the last gasps of true regionalism in American musical history. Um, and so Derek May, a little bit younger than Atkins, born 63, had what, what Matos calls a peripatetic childhood of moving across Detroit with a single mom. By the time he's 16 and mom's married and wants to move to Chicago, he says, no, I want to stay in Detroit, work on my music, and also keep, try to keep my football scholarship. There's a famous story about Kevin Saunderson, who also played football, having busted Derek May's lip in an early fight because Derek May is mouthy, uh, a, a reputation that he still has. Um, Amongst others. Yes. <laughs> and But around this time, Derek May has his conversion experience in, in Chicago. Saunderson's not impressed, but May puts together a posse that, including um, Atkins' little brother and others, who are regularly going to Chicago with him uh, to see what's going on in the clubs, also to buy the new records, and to, when, once they start making records, to, to distribute their records in Chicago. And, um, you know, they're also way into Ron Hardy at the Music Box, and that's where Matos gets into the differences between Ron Hardy and Frankie Knuckles. Uh, Ron Hardy, unashamed drug user, um, was really into playing fast, played a lot of white new wave. His crowd was younger, whiter, and straighter uh, than the crowds that were seeing Frankie Knuckles at the power plant in the warehouse. The Music Box was, um, just sounds like it was just a more intense, over-the-top scene. Uh, and big influence on the Detroit guys and everybody in Chicago. And then they talk about the Hot Mix 5 a little bit more. Uh, It was the WBMX Saturday Night Live Ain't No Jive Chicago Dance Party was the name of the show. The original Hot Mix 5 was Funkin' Farley Keith, who later changes his name to Farley Jackmaster Funk, Scott Smokin' Sills, Kenny Jammin' Jason, Mickey Mixon Oliver and Rockin' Ralph Rosario had up to a million listeners a week. And they would also do these dances on Saturday afternoons at a private Catholic school, high school in South Chicago, Mendel High. And I think that was a big part in spreading it across the city. This was an effort to try to combat crime and give the kids something positive to do with their time. And, you know, when you had DJs like the Hot Mix Five, and Frankie Knuckles, and Ron Hardy, uh, and and also a crew called The Chosen Few, which they mentioned Andrew Hatchett by name, but also Jesse Saunders was a member of The Chosen Few. So you've got a lot of talented DJs there, and there's already a bifurcation between uh, different styles of Chicago music. There's house and there's tracks. What's the difference between house and tracks? I think it's kind of a, a difference between uh, proper songs uh, like house songs that have, you know, vocals uh, often like, you know, that standard song structure um, and, and a lot of kind of effort put into it 
maybe even a narrative to the lyrics versus tracks, which will just have, you know, one or two words ghostly whispered over and over uh, a, a simple 909 or 808 beat, maybe with a, a couple of little uh, synthesizer squelches. So tracks were really stripped down dance, uh, dance material while, you know, people still had this idea that house songs like house music, uh, you know, was, was more of a, of, of a fully fleshed out musical idea. Got it. And we'll see this split takes on a life of its own and house becomes this long lasting style. And we talked about that through the whole Reynolds uh, narrative on technical series two and tracks is going to become more um, leads right into the hardcore jungle continuum as Reynolds called it and, and Detroit techno obviously. And, and the, we talked about the Jesse Saunders on and on record, but there's kind of a precursor of that because his friend um, Vince Lawrence had a dad named Nehemiah Mitchell Jr. who had a blues label called Mitch Ball Records. And he convinced his dad to put out some of these 12 inches. And before On and On comes out, they have a group called Z Factor. That's Vince Lawrence's band. They put out a single called Fast Cars. He he convinces his dad to put it out on 12 inch instead of seven inch 45 because uh, the higher retail price, I think you could sell a 12 inch for, for a serious multiple of what you could sell uh, a seven inch 45. So it wasn't hard to, to hip his dad to that, even if his dad didn't maybe didn't care about the improved bass response of the deeper 12 inch grooves or anything like that. He could get the uh, clear profit margin difference. Then they put out Fantasy in 1984, again by Z Factor, but this time Jesse Saunders is part of the band. And this is another melange track it's got the space invaders baseline but also has uh the melody from the flirts calling all boys and they'd heard that on dj herb kent's punk out radio show on wxfm which was kind of doing a similar thing for black kids in chicago as electrify mojo was doing in detroit was here's some white people music that's actually fun and hip that's cool to listen to and then they got screaming rachel to do the vocals and her limitations of pitch and also um having jesse saunders imperfectly express the flirts melody helped them create a new melody so they were less likely to get pinched uh for flagrant plagiarism um yeah that was kind of the second iteration of jesse saunders taking mocks on and on and doing something with it and this this is if you want to look at jesse saunders on and on as like the tracks version and then the z factor fantasy version as like the song version because they really they really pile on like a like 10 more layers of stuff on top of just the very basic space invader bass and the the funky town percussion and uh, they really doll it up, and it sounds much more pro, but it also takes away from from the direct groove and and the power it has on the dance floor. It's more much more of a radio play uh, pop song than Jesse Saunders' On and On, which is uh, which is just an ass shaker on the dance floor. All right, and let's go ahead and hear our next song. This is Mirage featuring Chip E, and the song is called It's House. that was mirage featuring chippy doing the track it's house from 1985 tell us why you picked that track uh you know we were talking about all the tracks that were coming out the tracks for the next kind of a lot of it going out on tracks records in chicago which we'll talk about momentarily and just the fact that these were quick dirty cheap releases and i thought uh it's house by chippy uh is the perfect kind of embodiment of of that really lo-fi techno sound that was get, just getting whipped out pressed and then brought into the clubs and because it was because it was fresh and dirty and dark it worked yep and the the kids adopted it as this is our music and so um they weren't as worried about the sound quality and and the fineries of it i do think though i think matos 
I think you have it backwards. Though. I think Fantasy actually came out in 1984, and On and On only came out in 85. And that came out on Saunders' own label, the Just Say Records, uh, J-E-S apostrophe. It's a pun on his first name. Uh, yeah, Saunders. yeah, no, Jesse Jesse Saunders did that track twice. He did it, did it with ah. uh, He did it with them, and they really dressed it up. And then they were like, you know what? Let's just strip it back down and get back to the basics on it. Yep, all because he had lost his copy of the Mock uh, remix. And there's a great story in that of how on and on had he'd been playing it at the clubs and playing at the high school gyms uh, at, at his various shows. And it had started to get copied on cassette and passed around so that by the time he printed it up and they stopped in at imports, et cetera, the record store, the people there were like freaked out and were like, how many of these do you have? And we'll take them all. And they, they sold a thousand copies out of their trunk that day to imports, et cetera. So that must've been, uh, as somebody who's put out many unsuccessful uh, self-released records, that must have been a great day uh, for them. And the, the you 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 tease Larry Sherman, who is I think one of the absolute characters of Chicago House and just a classic. This guy owned the only pressing plant in Chicago, so if you wanted to print your own record, you had to go to Musical Products, which is where he his pressing plant. And he kept a close eye on anybody who was printing a lot of something and. Uh, sniffing out business opportunities. It did not take him any time at all to figure out, whoa, these teenage black kids are coming in here and they're printing 10,000 copies of a single. They're clearly selling these to somebody. This is a business. I need to get in there. And so he forms two labels. One is Precision, which is the label he puts his house, his songs on. And then there's Tracks, T-R-A-X, which is was his label for dance tracks. And you know, the whole city is basically noticing this and a ton of musicians are like scratching their head like, how is this clearly amateur ass production stuff selling? Like, what is going on here? And you get people um, and, you know, and Trax is this infamously janky label like uh, Sherman would melt down old records to make the new ones and he wouldn't be especially scrupulous. You know, when you melt down old records, you have to punch out the middle because it's got the um, cardboard labels on it. He wasn't all that scrupulous about that, so you would literally get scraps of cardboard in the occasional tracks record. <laughs> so, and they were just, you know, it's recycled vinyl, so it was it was already popping and and warping easily and everything. Um, just uh, one of the legends of the music business. I think Larry Sherman might be the personification of the American music industry in the 20th century. Um, and in all the good and bad ways. And then, but it gets people like Marshall Jefferson, who's working in the post office. And this was back when a post office gig was a really good gig that paid well, had a ton of benefits. He took $10,000 uh, of his savings from his salary and spent it on home studio equipment. By his own admission, he was a guy who could barely play chopsticks on a keyboard. Um, but he gets in there and sure enough, by 1985, he's released Move Your Body, and with the key line, got to have house music all night long. And he, he did that because Larry Sherman was razzing him because he kept putting what sounded like piano lines. They were actually synthesizer lines that he had played very slowly, but then used technology to speed up and in the process made him sound more like a piano. But Larry Sherman and others were like, you can't have piano on a house track. And he was like, I'm going to show you, we're going to make the house track and it's going to have piano all over it. A great musical judo. Yeah, no, absolutely. And now, like piano being such a a big part of uh, of that that New York garage sound and a lot of that more gospel oriented house, like uh, Marshall Jefferson was definitely right. It's uh, piano. Piano goes with house like saxophone. It's like it just works. Yep, that's part of the recipe now. The definitive uh, genre form, formed there. Um, and we already played. Uh, one of the tracks off Chippy's um, or Mirage featuring Chippy's Jack Tracks EP, but that was a big record on the scene. Uh, had Time to Jack on one side, It's House on the other side. Uh, Farley Keith had his own house records. And so there's a ton of these records coming out. And then then this guy, Jamie Principal, whose real name was Brian, Byron Walford. Um, and I never got this until reading these books, but Jamie Principal 
was a massive Prince fan, and he had taken that uh, alias. Was I think Jamie Principal was an alias Prince had used on an early record. Well, that's Principal. Uh, like was you break it down has the word Prince in it, and then Prince also had a had an alias that was that was Jamie something, and so we kind of mashed up. Uh, one one part's the alias, uh, and the other part was just having Prince as a print as a disciple of Prince. So it's a it's a good good little good little portmanteau that he stuffed all together there. Ooh, nice word, nice word. See, this is why I have you around. You correct me on the facts, and then you bust out words like portmanteau. That I mean, fancy, good stuff. Uh, and then uh, he partners. He makes a number of demos. Jamie Principal does that are um, making an impact in the clubs. And apparently, he's they call him a shut in. I don't know that he was literally a shut in, but he wasn't a scenester. He wasn't out on the scene, dancing in all the clubs. And then when he decides to go into the studio and really record a record, he asks Frankie Knuckles to be the producer. And this is a kind of a break for Frankie Knuckles because he'd only done remixes up to this point and hadn't, uh, you know, been a producer. And so they make the uh, a number of records together. Mato singles out "Baby Wants to Ride" from 1987 as their greatest record together. So, um, you know, uh, kind of a landmark. I think. I think to me, Marshall Jefferson and Jamie Principal elevate the musicality of Chicago house from the extremely rough beginnings of stuff like on and on. Although honestly, I love on and on and, and telescoping it back. Like once you have somebody like green velvet, who's like a second generation Chicago house guy in the nineties, he clearly was bringing back elements of that janky production and the way that they would have the vocals just kind of slapped on the top and not cleaned up in the way you're used to hearing vocals on, on, on a record, you know, vocals get the reverb and the compression and everything. And these records, they're just slapping the raw vocals on there. And it sounds really kind of harsh and jarring. And it, to me, it's a hallmark of that early style. Yeah. It's no different than like, uh, than, than garage rock and, and how you're, you're no longer going for a, uh, a guitar plugged into a mixing desk, trying to get the purest sound. You're, you're just sticking like a, a beat up microphone in front of a beat up amp and you're hoping for as much distortion as possible. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's the lo-fi aesthetic that brings something to the table that people actually go out of their way to try to recapture later on. Um, that said, that being said, Frankie Knuckles and Jamie Principal, uh, their their stuff, as you said, it's a, it's an elevation. It, it, it's it's proof. I feel like this might be kind of Frankie Knuckles kind of coming back and saying, it's not all it's not all just kind of slipshod production. There is a way to move forward with this and really and really have a deep pro sound. And let's go ahead and hear that. Let's hear "Your Love" from 1986 by Frankie Knuckles and Jamie Principal. Your Love by Jamie Principal with Frankie Knuckles. Why'd you pick that track? Uh, just because it was uh, Frankie Knuckles kind of elevating the sound. And we were talking about Jamie Principal. And he's someone that I'd overlooked in the past. You know, like a lot of a lot of times when you look at Frankie Knuckles productions, Jamie Principal's name doesn't even make it into the uh, in, into into the credits. Uh, you know, on YouTube or on Spotify or whatever else like that. So rereading this and kind of looking more into him and appreciating him as kind of like an early green velvet type vocalists and stuff. Uh, I just thought it was uh, out, out of all of the options, I feel like we'd overlooked him. So I was excited to 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 do something that had both knuckles and principal. Excellent. I think Jamie deserves his propers because he definitely made a contribution. And then Matos gets into the whole thing about how uh, the key early house singles were, quote, frankly, sleazy, not just um, the rough production and off-key vocals, but also the lyrics are 
um, pretty crude. And the dancing style, jacking, the way they would grab pillars and basically hump and grab people and basically hump, um, was a pretty unrestrained, very sexualized dance style uh, for that era. I mean, I think stuff coming out of Jamaica has really made... 80s jacking look kind of quaint but at the time jacking was pretty shocking i can assure you that that it was a, a much more sexualized this is before twerking so um you know this was this was yet another sort of cultural milestone and changing the way americans treat sexuality in our dance yeah, um, discussed in the in the in the late 90s books that we read before is something like akin to a full full body seizure so now now <laughs> yes. nowadays jacking yeah it definitely has lost some of its edge but uh you know i think it's uh, i still have a hard time imagining just a, a club full of people jacking it must be pretty intense yeah and i think you know, you got to keep in mind this was the AIDS era, and so you're dealing with young people who have literally been whipsawed from a scene that just a couple of years earlier, I mean, like we talked about in the Continental Bass, where they were having sex clubs, on-premises sex clubs. Even Studio 54, people were screwing in the stands uh, at Studio 54. Then AIDS hits, and then people are really trying to pull back on their promiscuous sexuality. So a lot of that frustration got channeled into jacking. And, um, he shouts out some more records, Adonis is No Way Back, Hercules, Seven Ways to Jack. Uh, he shouts out Chicago Tracks Studios, which is no relation to Tracks Records, or Wax Tracks Records, which was a new wave slash industrial label uh, out of Chicago um, that the group ministry was the main group on that. And to me, it's like Wax Tracks is a bigger part of the Chicago story for dance music than maybe he then gets included retrospectively because a lot of those quote unquote new wave records that they were playing in Detroit or that they were playing on um, the uh, more punk shows in Chicago, uh, like I just mentioned, Wax Tracks was right in that mix. So ministry, early ministry, and early ministry is very different from later ministry. I think when you say ministry nowadays, people picture something, you know, Al Jorgensen screaming, doing duets with the Butthole Surfer singer, or, you know, influencing Nine Inch Nails and that kind of industrial Whereas his earlier stuff was really more synth pop than industrial and fit in on the dance floor seamlessly with New Order and the B-52s and Kraftwerk and stuff like that. Um, yeah, it's really funny how Wax Tracks, industrial in general, gets uh, be because there seems to be such a big divide between, you know, like, quote unquote, rock music and dance music. And, and industrial music was was very close to dance floor music or just straight up was dance floor music. But because it got lumped into the rock side uh it, it's completely separated from all the dance history and and you've got some efforts now to try to reintegrate because in the uk and in germany and all over europe industrial led into trance and, and there's like basically you you can't you can't go through the history of dance music without finding one key player who before getting into being trance or techno they were making industrial but uh, yeah, you're right. There's a, there's a complete separation in America, and it's still not something that's being reckoned with or, or really kind of thoughtfully untangled and and reintegrated into dance history. Yeah, absolutely, and and um, it's definitely not the mainstream of dance music. But I think it's a canard to say that it's not dance music because people were dancing to it in clubs, and the fan overlap between industrial and synth pop and dance music. The Venn diagram had a lot of overlap. And also, as our favorite listener, Rob McGowan, has pointed out, that kind of heavy rock industrial style that goes from the late 80s when Ministry converted into the, the hard rock sound and then Nine Inch Nails and Marilyn Manson and White Zombie is a direct influence on Skrillex and Bro Step in a way that we totally overlooked when we talked about Bro Step in that, in that time. But when Rob emailed us and pointed that out, I was like, duh, that makes so much sense. Um, and it's so obvious. So you just can't pull these strings of music. These genres are handy shorthand that nerds like me and Ryan use to keep things straight and to think about things and organize our thinking about music. But they're not Musicians don't think that way. Musicians listen to something. If it sounds cool, they steal it, basically. And uh, so, you know, genres 
one of the projects of the show is to try to break down this this way of seeing genre as these solid lines. Um, then we we need to cover some more ground though because Acid Tracks by DJ Pierre. Uh, gets covered here from 1985. This is the legendary birth of Acid House, where uh, they got a hold of the 303 Roland Bass machine, which um, had been used. I think it was on On and On. They used it, but they used it the proper way in On and On as a baseline simulator. Whereas DJ Pierre took this thing, didn't have the manual, and started twiddling the knobs and discovered that what was basically a failed bass synthesizer was a really cool machine for making wild noises. And that's where Acid House is born in this track, Acid Track, uh, with a weird uh, anti-drug monologue called Your Only Friend on the B-side. So, And also, it was cut from, originally cut at 127 beats per minute. They slowed it down to 120 beats per minute because Marshall Jefferson pointed out to him that 127 is too fast for New York, and they wanted to get played in the in the garage. And it's funny because, you know, the first person that was playing it in Chicago was Ron Hardy. And that just, you know, that just goes into his legend that he was just playing faster than everybody else. So he was I, I, I have no doubt that he had the 127 BPM cut and that's what he was hammering. And that's yeah. probably why they felt that was the speed. But meanwhile, back on planet Earth, where everybody else <laughs> is a little bit more chill, you want to cut that down to 120 yeah, and so I want to rush through and cover some of the early uh, Belleville 3 releases. So Juan Atkins quits uh, Cybertron uh, at this time and forms his new brand, Model 500, but it's just him solo. No, no UFOs comes out in 1985. Then he releases Night Drive, which is originally going to be the last Cybertron single, um, comes out as a, mod, as a Model 500 single. Uh, Derek May has a brief tenure, on as a DJ on the radio WJLB FM Street Beat show, uh, he's also DJing at Liedernacht, a downtown Detroit new wave club, and um, he starts putting out his own records f as Rhythm is Rhythm. Uh, nude Photo is the first one. He's the guy who labels the style techno. Starts his own label, Transmat. Meanwhile, Kevin Saunderson uh, is releasing records as Cream, K-R-E-E-M, uh, with uh, vocalist, vocalist Janine Barker that Matos calls, quote, endearingly pitchy. I, I assume that he means she struggles to stay on in tune. But they put out Triangle of Love on Saunderson's own Metroplex records. This one is a is, um, well, especially well-received in Chicago, starting the pattern of Saunderson being the most commercially successful of the Belleville Three. And then he also starts his own KMS label, and meanwhile, then Matos kind of ends the chapter with a survey of old Chicago music biz guys who are involved. Uh, he mentions Larry Sherman, uh, but also a guy named Rock Jones, who's an ex-record pool head. And that's where DJs form collectives and get new records from record companies and then can get them out onto the club floors faster. Um, he puts out... Uh, some tracks on his DJ international label, including Chippies Like This, which is a big bite, meaning plagiarism of the song Moody by ESG. ESG is this really fascinating all-female um, sort of funk band that came out of the no-wave scene in New York. So right in there was Lydia Lunch and uh, uh, James White and the Blacks and the Contortions and early Sonic Youth and stuff. But ESG is a really danceable sound, and, and they were hits – uh, staples both in, in the warehouse of Frankie Knuckles and also Paradise Garage by Larry LeVan and so Chippy swipes it then they talk about this guy Louis Pitzella, I'm not sure how to say that who's a Chicago concert promoter and this is where our tell for the next chapter comes in, he's the first to get wind that people in England were interested in house music and then Marshall Jefferson gets a phone call in 1985 from a London record store clerk who's also a pirate radio DJ, DJ Jazzy M, Jazzy M Jefferson, a.k.a. Michael Shiniao, um, who's interested in Marshall Jefferson's records. So that's our, our foreshadowing for next time. And our next chapter is called The Music Institute, Detroit, Michigan, November 24th, 1989. So this time he narrows it down to a specific date. And so we're going to continue our story of house and techno and how they conquer the world and then come back to slowly and surely conquer America 
And for Ryan Harkness, I'm Nate Wilcox, and the book we're reading and discussing is The Underground is Massive, How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America by Michelangelo Matos. And we'll talk to you next week. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate and Ryan will take the tale to Detroit to discuss Matos' take on the early techno scene in that city. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.